Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to Working, the podcast for what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we've been talking about animals with jobs. And for this episode, which is the final episode of our season, uh, we wanted to learn about show horses, uh, horses that, that, you know, compete, uh, equestrian athletes. Um, to that end, we spoke to uh, my friend Shauna Alexander, who talked to us about uh, a horse that she worked with named Skywalker uh, and about show horses more generally. We, we learned about what makes a show horse good at jumping uh, how they get pampered uh, on ordinary days throughout the weeks, how they train, uh, and and what it's like on the day that they're actually competing. Then in a Slate Plus Extra, Shauna talks to us about uh, the therapeutic capacities of horses, taking us full circle back to our first episode of the season, which was about miniature therapy horses. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can enjoy that and other great bonus extras. Uh, to start your free two-week trial, go to slate.com slash working plus. What is your animal's name and what does it do? My animal is Skywalker and he is a show jumping horse, but commonly referred to as Sky. That's kind of his nickname. <laughs> so uh, before we get ahead of ourselves, I want to talk to you about what a, a show jumping horse is and what it does, obviously. But uh what is your name and what is your relationship to uh, to Sky, to Skywalker? Yeah, my name is Shauna Alexander and I am his former owner. I owned him for four years um, and most recently now he is owned by a lovely woman named Julie. Were you a uh, a writer as well or just an owner? Oh gosh, yes. Uh, a major competitive writer for most of my life. Wow. Okay, so, so then this is the time to ask, what does a show jumping horse do? do? What is show jumping? Yeah. um, Show jumping is, I guess the best way to explain it is like a genre of horseback riding. Um, Mm -hmm. It is where specifically the kind of show jumping that Skywalker and I did is where um, you compete. So you jump over a course, some some kind of like an obstacle course, but Mm -hmm. not really. Um, A course of 12 to 15 fences as quickly as possible without knocking them down. Mm Mm-hmm. And when you say knock, knocking them down, I, just from the the few videos I've seen of show jumping over the years, it's it's not like knocking the whole fence over, but there are no, sort of slats a, that you can knock off. Yeah, like yeah. a rail down. So even if you knock two rails down or one rail down, you get penalty points called faults. Huh. And every time you knock, regardless of how many poles or rails for each fence, um, you get four faults. And, and how high are those barriers? Um, they can be anywhere from two feet if you're a little kid or, you know, just starting out to almost six feet if not. Um, we do it. We measure them in meters. So it's actually like a meter mm. 60. Because oh, it's a, a European yes. uh, origin for <laughs> yes, this Yes, it is. Yeah? Good. Yes. <laughs> um, and are there any other obstacles that, that, that you and Skywalker would jump over? Yeah. Or is I it mean, just these fences? Yeah, no, there's fences. And the fences all have different types. Um, there are straight posts and rails, which are just, you know, um, 
just straight posts and rails. It's really easy. I guess that explains itself. Uh-huh. Um, then there are planks, which are – you'd think of them more as like uh, like wooden planks that are sort of stacked on top of each other. They tend to be pretty um, uh, uh, sensitive uh, so that way, if your horse even their tail brushes it, sometimes they can come down. Mm. Um, and then you also have water jumps, which are called liver pools, and those can be up to like twenty feet wide. So you really need wow. some like major energy before going into them. But you then also tend to have right after that something very tricky, like a straight up and down post and rail fence. So that way, you have to balance the power of going over that wide water jump with also sort of the agility and the balance of getting over that skinnier, more sensitive fence. Huh. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty pretty incredible. How and how long are the actual courses that that you're taking a horse on? You're in the ring for maybe a minute and a half at the most. Okay, uh, and th- there are a lot of obstacles over the course of that. Uh... Yeah, there's anywhere between twelve, fifteen. Sometimes in the bigger um, competitions, there could be even more. Um, it depends on the course designer and sort of what level you're competing at. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after you sort of do that main class. Um, you then have a shorter class, which is called a jump off. Um, and that is if you have zero faults, so no fences down. Um, and it's how you sort of decide who the winner is because mm. uh, in the first round, it's only based on faults. Um, time only comes into effect if everybody has faults. Even mm. still, the faults, if you have four faults and everybody has four faults, then everybody still typically would go into a jump off, which is that shorter, quicker, sometimes even higher um, fences round that really mm. requires some like strategy and agility. Uh, are there particular breeds of horses that are trained to do show jumping? Or yeah. I mean, I assume it, not not all horses are doing this, but I don't know enough about horses. To- <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to say not all horses because I think at this point, with breeding being the way it is, um, where it's so intermersed, uh, uh, intermersed is not a right word, where it's so like interconnected, you can actually have a horse that isn't traditionally bred to do this. Um, maybe who develops the talent? Um, but specifically in show jumping, it's mostly warm bloods. And warm bloods are horses that usually come from Europe. Um, Skywalker is a Holsteiner, which is actually or- originated from uh, Holstein, Germany. So he's a hmm. German horse. And actually, I used to talk to him in German, um, and he, he actually understood that, which was really kind of fun. And he lived in Germany until he was about six years old, and then he came to the United States. Huh. Um, yeah, but mostly the warm blood horses are European sort of um, old war horses that their bloodlines have been thinned a little bit by the American thoroughbred. So they have this combination of... Um, strength and sort of agility and uh, speed like the American thoroughbred would. Hmm. But thoroughbreds can also compete too. It's not it's not just set apart for just warm bloods. Huh. How do you train a, a, a horse to show jump in the first place? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, it really starts from a young age of getting the horse used to even just being ridden, um, hmm. which is a, a technique called uh, backing and breaking. And so what ends up happening is, is you essentially get the horse used to being ridden. And then as the horse progresses in their both their physical growth and their mental growth, um, they become sort of more accepting of new challenges and new ideas and new techniques. And so, you know, you would start with something, um, and this is getting a little nuanced, a thing called a lunge line, which is like, think of it as a, re- a really long dog leash. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you would do is you would put your horse on the end of it and, you know, obviously set up, set them up very safely and then make them trot or even walk over some poles and then just sort of advance that, you know, as time and progress allows to eventually start jumping over it. Horses are, are naturally flight animals, so mm-hmm. they're pretty used to jumping over things in the wild if they are wild. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that, that sort of technique of jumping is sort of ingrained with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a lot of like, 
it takes a long time and a lot of like personal relationship time with a horse mm. in order to get it to trust you to jump. And then to get it all the way to the Olympic level, I mean, it really is all about the relationship. Um, mm. Those horses love their jobs. 150 percent if they didn't love them i promise you a horse wouldn't jump over a fence at six foot tall just like you know if you don't want to go swimming you're never going to go swimming you know right and so um yeah but it's to get them to do that and do it well and understand sort of the strategy and the and the speed of it all it really is sort of this relation comes down to the relationship of the rider and the horse so is, is that something that you or, or another rider is, is actively involved with or are there people that are doing the training and then people that are doing the riding later on? Yeah, I mean, um, it, it really depends on sort of what your background is in riding. I was not mm -hmm. somebody who trained horses from a very young age um, in the sense of like the breaking and backing period to mm -hmm. be a major competition horse. I usually got them when they were about five or six um, and then took them from there through the levels as I was when I was a teenager. So you kind of have two like intermediate, like an intermediate human and an intermediate horse kind of mm -hmm. learning together how to do, uh, how to be show jumpers and how to yeah. jump over these fences and be technically proficient and also successful. Mm-hmm. And, and and when when you're actually on the course with the horse, we may be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. But to what extent does the rider's skill come into play in in making sure that that the horse can complete its course successfully? Yeah, I mean that's a question I kind of get laughed at um, from a lot of people. Um, they tend to say that it's the horse that does all the work. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I think it's a fifty fifty partnership. You do need the horse's obviously physical ability, but you also need their mental. Um, sort of fortitude too, because hmm. those those fences a meter sixty is not short. Um, so you really need the horse to have faith in you and faith in what you're doing in order to complete a course. As a rider, you're there to provide guidance and obviously direction and also pacing. It's real. I would say ninety percent of horseback riding is all about the pace. My hmm. trainer, uh, both David Loman and Kevin Bruce, would would yell at me if I didn't mention that like horseback riding is all about this thing that we called being forward. And forward is this idea of going and moving forward. It's not about mm -hmm. speed. It's about having impulsion to move forward and sort of give that horse that sort of kinetic energy in order to be able to jump over the fence and land with sort of this energy to keep going. Because if you don't have that energy and you don't have that sort of um, balance, you you could have a sort of a tragic thing happen, like the horse could stop or you could take a rail down or, you know, something possibly more severe than that. So it's about finding the pace, setting yeah, a, a yeah, rhythm yeah, totally. between jumps. I used yeah. to sing Camptown Races um, in my head because it's got the right pace of Camptown Races, sing a song, <laughs> do-da, do-da. And so, like, it kind of had the good pace while I was going around a course to kind of keep me in that rhythm um, uh -huh. And keep Skywalker in that rhythm, too, because I knew when he was sort of slowing down and I felt like I was slowing down with my singing, I had to sort of squeeze him with my legs and encourage him to go forward. Mm -hmm. So there's like a real communication that is going on, a kind of give a take. Yeah. And if you can imagine, it's very – it's a communication with someone who doesn't speak your own language, right? And right. so it's all about the nuances. If I shifted my seat to the right – Skywalker is so well-trained that he would probably change his lead. A lead is like if you were walking and you're leading with your left foot, you know, mm -hmm. horses are trained to, to change those leads for certain um, other levels, of, uh, other disciplines of riding. But also it's a uh, it's about um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, balance, too. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, finding a horse. Uh, if you're on the right lead, the horse can then propel themselves forward quicker. Hmm. Um are there there are other kinds of show uh, show horses as well? Show jumping isn't the only oh yeah 
career for 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 show horses. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, so if you think of equestrian sport, that's the proper term, right? Equestrian. Okay. Uh, that's what the Olympics would call it, and that's what sort of is the overarching term. Um, if you look at the genres, like if this was music. Show jumping is just a genre of equestrian sport or horseback riding. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also, I mean, there's a million genres in the sense of all equestrian sport. But if we're going to talk just about English sports, there's show jumping, dressage, and eventing. Dressage is sort of that ballet on horseback that everybody kind of sees and sort of makes mm-hmm. fun of. You know, it's very fancy mm-hmm. footwork. It's You see people in top hats and it's very elegant and it seems very rich. Um and then you have eventing, which I like to explain as the sort of the triathlon of, show, of equestrian sport. You're doing three events, which are show jumping, uh, dressage, and then you're also doing this event called cross country. Cross country is where um, you and your horse have to have enough stamina and agility to get through a very lengthy course that is sort of set over natural obst- like obstacles. Think of it as like a tough mutter for horses. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And it's very aggressive. I am terrified of doing it. All the eventers that I know are crazy, and they would love that I'd say that. Um, there's a great website called Eventing Nation that says eventing is incent- – uh, uh, it's uh, red on the right, white on the, on the left, or an insanity in the middle, or something like that is their tagline, <laughs> and it's it's definitely not for the faint of heart. So, what was it about Skywalker that that made him a good show jumping horse specifically, and not an eventing horse or a, a dressage yeah, horse? Yeah, um, Skywalker is, I would say, probably the smartest horse I've ever sat on, and so huh. that is a totally a blessing. Um, but because of that, he's almost too smart sometimes. And so he would overthink um, something like cross country because he would be a little bit nervous about the landing on the other side of a, you know, a water jump or something like that. So his real focus for me and for, and, you know, for us as a pair was show jumping because he liked the, the speed of it all. But he also liked being able to jump the big fences and also the technique, the tight turns that, that we call them rollbacks in, in uh, equestrian sport. Or, you know, the short approaches or the big, long sort of gallops to water. Those were techniques and things and and challenges that he really excelled at. So because of his sort of proficiency in these areas, we became a show jumping pair. And I had Hmm. always been trained as a show jumper. So we just sort of got matched up um, and sort of worked out well. But, yeah, he's very smart. Mm -hmm. So what is... Maybe this is a naive question too, but what, what does intelligence look like in a horse? I mean, you say you speak to him in German, and he seemed to sort of process some of that. But, <laughs> but, but I, you know, it's not Mister Ed kind of intelligence that we're no, talking no, about no, no. here. Yeah, they don't. They definitely don't talk back to you. That's for sure. <laughs> right, At least course, not in like a course. normal, you know, cartoon way. Um, yeah. You know, for horses, the intelligence comes from I would say knowing when to be submissive and when to sort of be in control. Um, equestrian sport and you know, I sort of fight with the idea of explaining it this way. It's it's all about the balance of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and so intelligence in a horse, in my opinion, I think, comes from understanding that there is this balance. You know, mm-hmm. like he – I sometimes would be a scaredy cat at the bigger fences and he would kind of come in and save the day and know to kind of kick into overdrive or give himself more speed because I was feeling apprehensive, right? Mm-hmm. That to me is intelligence in a horse, Someone who, a horse that understands – sort of their part in this partnership. Um, mm. That doesn't mean, you know, that's everybody's definition of intelligence in a horse. But for me personally, that's why I think he's sort of the, the most intelligent horse I've ever been on. He's been the best fit mm. partner for me. He also technically understood how to jump and how his form, all these sorts of 
nuanced pieces were also very technically correct. And I think that also has to do sort of with his like education and his intelligence. Mm. Mm-hmm. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com slash working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Not every day is a competition day uh, for one of these horses. Correct. What's an ordinary day like for uh, an equestrian athlete like like Skywalker? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's going to sound really luxurious, I suppose. Um, you know, horses have, um, especially top-level equestrian uh, animals, they have... Um, a lot of people who take care of them. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone from the stable manager, who's the person who sort of oversees the barn, to grooms every day who make sure that they're fed and clean and, and that their stalls are clean. Um, you know, Skywalker's daily life is pretty nice. I mean, he he kind of wakes up in his, like, blanket, usually, if, if it's this time of year. Um, somebody will take it off if it's too hot. Somebody will make sure it's stayed on snugly if it's too, if it's too cold. Um, and then he'll get breakfast, um, which is a mixture of grains and hay, and he'll get some fresh water. Um, the grooms will pick out his hooves. That's um, where you make sure that all the gunk between their sort of like hooves is taken out because mm-hmm. bacteria and things can develop um, infections and whatnot. Um, and then he would get turned out into a beautiful green pasture with some of his friends. Um, mm-hmm. He has friends. And, you know, he would hang out all day until I come in, um, usually in the afternoon after work. Um, and if it's before a certain time, usually he gets brought back in around 3 o'clock in the afternoon to have dinner. Uh, same thing, gray, uh, grain and hay and whatnot. And, you know, he kind of hangs out in his stall. And then I go and I take him out and we exercise and exercise um, can be something from me hand-walking him if he's coming off of an injury, um, or it could be something even more sort of uh, intense, which is like having a lesson with one of my trainers, which would be, you know, you do like 15 minutes of warm-up work. He's a bit of an older horse, so I like to make sure he has a lot of warm-up. Um, and then, you know, you kind of get into your sort of challenge for the day. What is the thing that he and I have been struggling on? Or if we have a competition coming up, what are the things that we need to fine-tune or maybe we're just making sure that we've got our, you know, our rhythm down and our partnership down. 
And then, you know, you ride for about an hour, you cool him off for about another 15 minutes, and then he gets groomed by me. Um, he's a white horse, so I spend a lot of time cleaning him. A lot of time. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then he goes back in his stall and he goes to sleep. It's a pretty normal, luxurious life. Yeah. Where, where is the the barn, the stable that, that, yeah, that he's looking um, at? Yeah, it is called CB Farm, and it's in Poolsville, Maryland. Mm-hmm. And say a little more about about the the diet. I mean, is a, is there special nutrition for oh, yeah. uh, a show horse? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's nutrition for a hor- for any horse. You know, totally. There's even people who have jobs, honestly, whose um, sole focus is on the nutrition and the dieting um, for horses of sort of mm-hmm. any genre of riding. But for Skywalker, because he's an older horse, he got. Um, fed a mixture of sort of what we call senior grains. Um, and mm. so those have extra sort of proteins and and fats so that way he can stay healthy because, you know, obviously as someone gets older, it's a little bit harder for them to process, um, you know, foods are different in the same way. And, and also it makes sure he keeps muscle tone. It also makes sure he stays beautiful where he's nice mm. and shiny. You know, he gets kind of a mixture of oils and things like that too and some antibiotics in case if he's got like a cold or um, yeah, I mean, it's. It, I am not nearly proficient enough to tell you all the nuances of uh, sure. equestrian feed, but it's pretty aggressive, um, and I I love my barn for being able to do that part for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds like this is all probably pretty expensive. I mean, it's oh, expensive yeah. to, to, <laughs> to have a horse in the first place. But like, what's the? If I can ask, what's the cost of actually? maintaining a a champion horse at this level. Yeah, God, it's a number that scares me every time I think about it. Um, It is very expensive. Um, And as somebody who does it all on her own, um, I am lucky enough to have people in my life, especially my trainers, who understand that it's expensive and allow me to sort of groom at shows or, um, you know, help out or sort of give me breaks or more horses to ride just so Mm -hmm. I can, you know, make it more fulfilling and also affordable. But mm-hmm. I mean, any board in Maryland starts at about, if you're doing, if it's specifically a show jumping or like a, a, a show horse, I mean, the cheapest board I've seen is about $800 a month. Um, and right. that is like basic care, that care that I just outlined earlier. If you want training, if you want more care, if you want your horse to be groomed every single day, that can, I mean, it can get up to two thousand dollars a month, and that's just in Maryland. If we're talking about New York City, it can be something like four or five thousand dollars a month, depending on. You know, I heard a, a story once a, a little bit ago that Georgina Bloomberg spends a million dollars a month on the care of her horses. I don't wow. know if that's true, but if you know, knowing as as amazing of a competitor that she is, and also the quality of her horses, I would not be surprised. Hmm. Uh, are the other horses that that uh, he is? with when he's when he's at the barn you can call them friends uh, <laughs> so are his friends also show horses yeah i mean at um most of the horses at cb farm are definitely show horses um we are all sort of a group of we like to uh the the technical term is adult amateurs where that means mm. you you've passed through your junior career um you end your junior career when you're 18 and so now you're technically an adult in the eyes of the united states equestrian federation when you uh, say you you mean the horse is an no, adult no, or uh, no, the you, you the rider the rider okay yeah yeah the, so we're talking about the rider age horse age doesn't really matter in this unless you get into sort of the sub nuances of what genre of riding you're doing um mm. so yeah so the riders are all over most of us are all over 18 and sort of working professionals none of us do this professionally so that's why we're mm-hmm. called amateurs so mm-hmm. that way we can compete against other amateurs as a as opposed to being professionals where you compete sometimes even against olympians 
what's the difference there? I mean, how how much effort do you have to put in to sort of reach that professional riding level? Yeah, I mean, the first main difference is that between amateur and professional is that a professional makes their living, so they get paid to ride mm-hmm. or to compete or to train. Um, I did not do that, and so I was an amateur. Um, mm-hmm. And while I competed at a high level, I would still not be considered a professional because I was not getting compensation in the mm-hmm. form of money or lessons or anything like that for my riding or yeah. for my competing or for just even being at the barn. Where where do the actual competitions happen? You, you were based uh, – or Skywalker was based in Maryland. Uh, are there competitions – Kind of, is it on the seaboard that you were competing mostly? Yeah. Or, um, or elsewhere in the country, other countries? Yeah. I mean, so for my type of riding, for what I did, I was mostly a regional and national rider. And so mm-hmm. most of my competitions were within the sort of tri state um, tri-state area of Maryland, D.C., Virginia, sometimes West Virginia or North Carolina, or, or maybe if we're feeling like super excited about our potential at a certain show, we would come up here to Long Island to go to the Hampton Classic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it really depends on sort of what your goal is for that year. Um, the horse show sort of map, if you were looking at the United States specifically, is di- uh, divided by zones. And those zones, like zone one, zone two, zone three, kind of cover many states. And so you can only accumulate points in your specific zone and the adjacent zones. So it would never make sense for me to go to a show in California mm-hmm. because I wouldn't necessarily be collecting the right points. And mm-hmm. those points get you to, you know, to regionals and then national zones and then nationals. Um, and actually one of those major horse shows is actually the Washington International Horse Show, which, com- mm-hmm. which is in Washington, D.C. every October. Who administers all of this stuff? Yeah, so that's the United States Equestrian Federation. Um, they are the overarching sort of national governing body of uh, equestrian sport. And so it's not just show jumping. They do dressage, um, hunters, you name it, um, even barrel racing, things like that. All sort of horseback riding in the United States is overseen and governed by the USEF. Mm-hmm. How would you get to and from a, a competition? <laughs> yeah, actually, that's a really funny story. Um, I grew up in New York where I didn't know how to drive a car until I was 30 years old. Um, uh-huh. And so I actually specifically learned how to drive a car so I could drive myself to the barn and to horse shows um, once I had purchased Skywalker. <laughs> I'd actually relied on the benevolence of many a friend to take me to the barn for about a year. So thank you to those friends for making my dreams come true. Those, um, those sound like... Friends as good as those uh, <laughs> that Skywalker knows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they the all yard. loved him too, which was really great. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for horses to get to competitions, um, they get into these big things called trailers. And they're essentially, mm-hmm. you know, big metal boxes that sort right. of trailer them from show to show. Um, if you're going to go to an international competition, which is um, pretty aggressive and really high level um, part of the sport, you would actually put them on a plane. Um, and, you know, KLM, you can even like FedEx your horse essentially, um, which is kind of crazy to think about. That's obviously a much more expensive sort of universe to sort of play in. But yeah, I mean, horses go on planes, they have specific stalls and whole teams that take care of them. Um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Did you ever have to do that with Skywalker? I did not because he came to the United States and kind of hung out. (laughs) I was lucky that somebody else sort of paid for him to come over here when he was younger. Yeah, yeah. what? How often do the competitions actually happen for for a kind of amateur class? Yeah, uh, horse like Skywalker. So um, every weekend, and there are many oh, wow. many shows 
all over the United States every single weekend. It doesn't matter if it's negative 20 out. There's still a horse mm-hmm. show happening. Um, we are – and Skywalker too. I'll totally you know, bring him into this um, – are very dedicated to our sport. And mm-hmm. through sort of rain, sleet, snow, monsoons, you name it, um, Skywalker and I have been through it all. And uh, yeah, I mean the shows happen every single weekend all over the country. Um, and even in your own zone, there can be competing horse shows uh, depending on sort of what the timing of the year is. It mostly – as you could kind of imagine, you kind of follow the good weather, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so really shows start kind of ramping up like right around now, um, which is, you know, sort of the early spring and go really through the end of, Octo- uh, end of October, November. And mm-hmm. you have like a lesser sort of off season sort of in your October, November, December, January. But there's also many people who can afford to go down to Wellington, Florida and kind of continue competing or Ocala, Florida, and continue competing at that high level because um, the weather is nice enough down there. Hmm. Do you, on a competition day, uh, you've, they've been presumably already transported by the time of the day? Mm-hmm. Uh, do they, so they they staying at a local barn by the by the show space overnight or something like this? Actually, most of the show facilities have barns, um, either temporary or if you're going to a really nice show, permanent stalling mm-hmm. um, on site. That actually, you're if you and your barn and your t- you know your we consider ourselves a team, even though it's a very individual sport. It's not a team sport. Um, you know, your barn goes and you sort of set up your colors and you all have your beautiful tech trunks. Tech trunks are sort of. Um, Beautiful. They tend to be beautiful wooden trunks that have all of your equipment and gear and mm-hmm. even maybe some good luck charms or superstition sort of charms mm-hmm. inside mm-hmm. them and all of your stuff that you sort of take care of your horse with. And those are usually decorated with your colors and, and, and whatnot. And then you kind of go and you set up and you kind of live in this sort of like nomadic sort of experience for the weekend. Um, you, meaning me, the rider, would either stay in a local hotel or, or something of that sort. And the horse stays on site at the equestrian, at the showgrounds in order to make sure that their experience is as comfortable as possible. And so you don't typically show up and immediately go show. Some people do that because it, it may be a resources thing or it may just be sort of what works best for them and their horse. But Skywalker and I pr- particularly liked to get there a day or two early. On the first day, he can be really rambunctious. He gets really excited and by excited, I mean uh, insane. <laughs> and, you know, he kind of likes to throw out a couple of bucks and sort of get really excited and play and and kind of – I like to call it like his day of remembering he's young. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, that first day is kind of really important to our training and our regiment first to kind of get that energy out. And, mm-hmm. you know, I would maybe ride him for a little bit longer, maybe an hour and a half or maybe ride him twice in order to sort of let him get those sort of like excitement, nerves, jitters out. And then kind of the next day we would begin showing. And on a on the actual show day, do you check out the course? Oh, uh, yeah. Like what, what, what kind of prep goes in before the actual uh, performance, if yeah, that's the right Yeah. Thing? I mean on show day – show day is a day full of nerves for me at least. Um, some riders can, some, can get away with not having nerves, but I always do. Um, and even horses too, they can kind of feel that sort of anxious energy you have. And so that translates to them too, when you're sitting on top of them. Um, but for a show day, it requires a lot of waking up very early, usually like 4am <laughs> to make sure your horse is fed and that their food has been digested. Um, before they're competing, horses have very sensitive stomachs. And so you don't ever kind of want to put them in an in a environment that's going to, um, cause some anxiety or just even sort of over, 
exercise before they've sort of had a chance to um, digest. Uh, they have one-way digestive tract, so they can't throw up. So it can be kind of like a medical thing if you don't sort of take the time to make sure that's really sort of well thought out. Um, and of course, then he obviously gets groomed and bathed because, again, he's a white horse. And I can't stress enough how many hours of my life have been spent blow drying him at three in the morning or four in the morning because I just had to give him a bath with cold water. Um, he's a super trooper for sure for being able to deal with all that. Um, wow. And then, you know, I would go hack him really quick, you know, and a hacking is called is the concept of just sort of getting on and, and riding and sort of getting their muscles warm. And then I would go walk the course and walking the course, usually with my trainer or a fellow rider who's sort of at the same level as me. Um, you go and you study your course on paper. And so all the fences have numbers um, and you would understand and memorize what that sort of pattern and those numbers are. Um, mm. And then you would go in between classes or whenever they allow for a break and you would actually physically walk the course to understand not just sort of the the directions or where to go, but also sort of how much space you have to make mm. certain decisions. Can I make a tighter turn between three and four in order to save myself some time because I know fence six, I'm going to need to sort of, you know, set him up for maybe fence six is a Liverpool and I'm going to have to set him up for that. So I'm going to need an extra stride or two. It's really mm. kind of this like mental physics you're doing about and it's very specific to you and the horse you're riding. Um, a lot of people can and you can many people would have the same plan because especially at the amateur levels, the questions tend to be all, you know, for every rider tend to be the same, but obviously sort of in the nuances of personality and technique and talent, both between horse and rider, there may be, you know, Skywalker was really good about being able to take, um, to work on a collected stride. A collected stride is sort of a shorter step. And so when I had to ask him for a longer one, I needed more runway, more space to kind of get that out of him. So if we were jumping a Liverpool, I knew I needed more more time. If we were... Um, you know, doing sort of shorter technical tight turn course, I knew that I could just kind of go in there and gun it and wing it. Um, and we would be really sort of fine. So mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you go, you sort of study that course, you talk to your trainer a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then you kind of, you know, wait for your class to happen. Um, there's this old saying in horse shows that you are, it's very much hurry up and wait. Now, 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 now. Just kidding. Someone, you know, this person is taking 20 extra minutes to get to the course. So now everything's kind of put on hold. So <laughs> it's a definitely a game of patience, too. And when you're ready to go, what's what's that moment like? What, what kind of communication are you having with, with your horse in that moment? Yeah, for me, and, you know, I think Skywalker, too, it's kind of like having just had a shot of espresso. <laughs> you kind of, like, uh -huh. feel like we're going to do this. Um, and since I'm a show jumper, um, I don't necessarily always have to be as like well-dressed. And by well-dressed, I mean like wearing a show coat, right? Mm -hmm. And so, which is nice because it kind of lets you feel a little bit more like you're at home practicing. Mm -hmm. But um, I actually have a helmet that has a visor built into it um, because mm -hmm. I wear glasses and it's hard to wear sunglasses while riding or glasses even. Um, so the visor, I'd actually, right before I go and press the visor down and it kind of comes over my face, um, and makes me feel like the Terminator. And I kind of like <laughs> that kind of happens. And I feel like I sit up a little taller and Skywalker uh -huh. kind of feels that. And he's like, all right, I'm ready to do this. We kind uh -huh. of go in, we trot into the ring and like, it's, it's, it's go time. Um, and what ends up happening is you kind of get into the ring and the judge, especially in jumpers, you have a judge there just to sort of make any technical decisions in case if something happens, but really it's you and the clock, you, mm -hmm. your horse and the clock, I should say. Um, and 
and the course. And so you usually get a few seconds before they press a buzzer um, or a bell or whatever sort of sound machine they can find. It depends at sort of what <laughs> level. Um, sometimes it can be very silly. Uh, someone even just yelling. <laughs> um, and then you usually have about 30 to 60 seconds, depending on the show, to sort of get ready and to get your sort of pace and your rhythm. And then the second you kind of get there, your first jump is when they start the, the actual countdown clock of, or not really a countdown, count up clock, uh, mm-hmm. to sort of time how long it takes for you to get through your course. Hmm. And what is a award-winning championship performance look and feel like as, as you're going through it? It's the greatest feeling in the world, honestly. Um, it's why I sort of st- struggled to pay for equestrian sport for so long. Um, it It looks like almost like you're doing nothing at all. You and the horse are kind of in simpatico and you're also the pace is there. There's sort of no questions. There's no stopping. There's no, you know, it's just very fluid and all the fences stay up and you do it under time and you do it faster than everyone else. Mm. Um, And it's, um, there's this part usually uh, sometimes in the amateur world, but a lot in the professional world, well, they'll let you do a victory gallop. And that's kind of really where you get to like soak in your win. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like the greatest feeling. Like I, whenever Skywalker and I were allowed to sort of do a victory gallop or, you know, even knew we won, like it just sort of makes you prouder. You kind of, like I said earlier, stand up a little taller and you feel like all of this energy and all of this effort between you and your horse and even the struggles, because it's, it's not often that one wins. Um, all of that is like worth it, right? All of the sacrificing of not seeing your friends for three weeks because you're at the barn until midnight every day, getting ready and practicing, you know, it's, it's, it, it's just like validation. I, that's probably the easiest way to say it, but it's also kind of like hope that you are going to continue doing well and continue competing well. And that you've, You've met the challenges put in front of you. And for me, that's always a sign of, okay, I need to try harder and do better and and maybe advance further, maybe do a higher class or a more technical class. And And Skywalker is such a rock star that he was always capable of doing whatever I wanted to do or what I could do. He was always better than I was. And so um, I always felt like whenever I won or we won together, I was doing him a good service of letting him shine. Mm. And you said earlier that these horses enjoy what they're doing or they wouldn't do it. Oh, yeah, 150%. Uh, But, I mean, this may be a strange question because, uh, of course, their way of cognizing all of this is quite different than our own. Oh, for sure. But to what extent do they understand winning or, or even just doing well? You know, um, I think it's the idea of being rewarded, right? You know, when a horse does well or a rider does well, they instantly pat their neck and they give them big hugs. And, you know, that's affection. That's positive reinforcement. They get treats. They get ribbons. And then they get photos of themselves with the ribbons and the rider and the trainer. You know, it's all this sort of pomp and circumstance. And don't get me wrong. I love it. You can tell. Um, But that sort of like positive feeling is like in the air. It's also kind of if you think about it, like when you're in a good mood and you're surrounded by your friends, that energy translates, right? Mm-hmm. And and everybody kind of feels a little bit lighter and happier. You know, in the even in the smaller sort of quiet moments, even if I hadn't done well in a class because I made a mistake, usually it was very rarely Skywalker's fault. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those moments between you and the horse are, I think that's how they know that they've done well. Because like mm-hmm. horses are 
the most empathetic creature on the planet. Um, scientific studies have proven they understand human emotions even better than dogs. And so when a person is feeling light and positive and full of hope, that kind of translates, right? And when you are feeling defeated and sad and and like you can't do it anymore, that also translates. And so, you know, on my bad days, Skywalker kind of knew mm. not to be a punk, not to, you know, throw in a buck here or or not to sort of challenge my bad mood because he understood and he could feel that energy and that sort of like, you know, you have to remember you're sitting on a horse, right? So like they understand your body weight. If I'm slumped down, like you, like, you know, I'm just tired and whatever, he can feel all of that weight kind of slumped on top of him. If I'm sitting tall, it's distributed evenly. You know, it's a little bit easier for him to carry. He feels that. He understands that. Also, it could be something as simple as like, maybe I'm not using my spurs as much, you know, because for whatever reason, I don't need to because he's responding to me properly. So I don't need to encourage him with a spur or things like that. Um, yeah, I kind of ran away from the question there a little bit, no, but no. I, I hopefully that explains it. And it's just, yeah, it's all about the relationship, really. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Things do go wrong sometimes. How does safety come in here? I mean, do horses ever get hurt? Yes, um, unfortunately. Um, that is sort of the worst part of the sport is you are competing with an animal that is huge and has a mind of its own. And some days it just doesn't go your way. Um, whether that's because, you know, the wind blows and something like a plastic bag floats across the ring, which has happened mm -hmm. to me, or, or mm -hmm. a spectator opens an umbrella. That has also happened, <laughs> um, you know, and Skywalker sees it from the corner of his eyes and it scares him, right? Because mm -hmm. he's still an animal at the end of the day, no matter how well I know him and no matter how well he knows me, he's still going to have animalistic responses to things. And so it's my job in that sort of moment to not overreact. And that is so hard. Think of it as like if you're getting into a car crash, the last thing you want to do is freak out, right? But sort of everybody's natural inclination is to be like, oh my God, I'm crashing my car, you know? It's it's hard to be like, something bad is happening. I need to relax as opposed to react. And that is the hardest lesson I had to learn um, while riding was like everything you do, every reaction, everything you feel translates to them so you need to always sort of be the least reactive um and so when bad things happen you know whether it's injuries or gosh hopefully never a fatality um but if it's something like that you know it's 
usually a combination of factors. Um, and those factors can be everything from uncontrollable things to bad footing to a bad choice by the writer. Gosh, I hate saying that out loud because mm-hmm. it's, it's just a combination of things, right? And, you know, sometimes it can be even um, – there was a horse – um, many moons ago, a famous horse by the name of Hickstead, who actually unfortunately died on course. And that is because that horse had a heart attack, you know, and, and mm. there are some things that are just out of your control. Um, mm. I actually, uh, a couple of years ago, Skywalker got injured in competition. Um, gosh, I don't even really remember how, because it was, it was such like a traumatic moment, but he ended up cutting open his back leg pretty, pretty aggressively. Oh, um, and he now still even has a scar from it that I kind of like babied every day. <laughs> um, you know, and that was a combination of me making a bad decision coming to a fence because it was a question that I had been posed before and I was nervous. It was nationals, uh, a show called the regional finals at, in, uh, in Washington, DC. And, um, yeah, I, I just sort of was like in over my head. I let my nerves get me in over my head and, because of that nervousness, I wasn't thinking through, right? And so we made a deci- I made a decision, but essentially it's a partnership still, to jump a fence, but I wasn't ready. And it was a windy day, and the fences, the poles kind of came down with his back legs, and he just got tangled up in the back. The poles got tangled up in the back of his legs, and as a result, they just kind of gashed him open. Um, mm. You know, those are the days that are the absolute hardest, because I know that was a decision I made that that caused him har- like harm. You can kind of even even hear in my voice right now how upsetting it can be. Sure, yeah, yeah. But also, he knows. At least I hope he knows. I feel like he knows that it wasn't ever intentional, right? right? And then you sort of spend as much time and money and resources as possible to sort of make them better and yeah. to do better for them. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> forgive me. <laughs> rough. I'm, no, yeah, no, no, I mean, it's like a total partner. I can't ex- like stress it enough. It's a total partnership. So yeah. when something bad happens between the partners or to a partner, both people, both entities, and I, I say people because he's essentially a person to me, mm-hmm. um, feel it and they feel it intensely. Yeah. Well, under the best possible circumstances, how long is a show horse's career? Yeah. Um, wow. That's a uh, it's a hard question to answer because actually Skywalker right now is 23, which is wow. pretty old for a show jumping horse. Yeah. Um, they usually their prime tends to be about when they're between like eight and 14. That's sort of mm-hmm. like think of that as like when you're freshly out of college, you're like the uh-huh. most knowledgeable and you're also kind of the most like arrogant too. Sure. Um, <laughs> you know, he is probably Skywalker has probably like gotten his PhD already and, you know, now can like teach any class. He can teach at Harvard if he wanted to, um, <laughs> you know, and he's should be retiring soon, but he's just got the stamina and just the fantastic health um, knock on wood, of course, um, to keep going. And he's teaching younger riders or even just not just younger riders, but sort of riders who are still learning. And that's their careers can be quite long, honestly. And when a horse can no longer compete, do they just go hang out in the pasture? And what's what's the rest of their life like? Yeah, I mean, so it really depends on who the owner is. And this is sort of a Kind of also a little bit of a dark side of the equestrian world. Um, when horses sort of no longer have a real value, and that value meaning competition or being able to be used as a, a lesson horse or whatnot, sometimes they 
can end up in unfortunate situations. Skywalker will literally be retired on my trainer's farm the second he's ready for retirement. Um, that is an agreement that I have with them. Um, and I don't he'll just ever live th- out his days. Yeah, he'll just like hang out and eat grass and, you know, get brushed and groomed. And that doesn't mean he won't be ridden occasionally because it's actually still really important if they can physically do it, that they still are ridden. So that way they keep some muscle tone. Um, Mm. It also is just good for their brains, um, you know, to feel needed and to feel wanted and to feel necessary. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, he will live out a glorious life of eating really nice clover. (laughs) You started Riding horses quite young. Yes. Uh, you've been doing it your whole life. You're in your 30s now, yeah? Yeah, I'm 34, and I started riding when I was four years old. Though, t- I mean, pretty much I was put on a pony from the second I could sit up. Um, so so three-plus decades yes. you've been doing this. Um, if someone wants to get into show jumping uh, or, or other equestrian sports to, to learn more about it, where do they begin? Yeah, I mean – The first thing that I always sort of stress to everybody is you need to understand that it's going to be a financial burden. Um, And I say that because I know how much my parents struggled to pay for my horses when I was growing up. You know, my mom's a teacher. My dad is, you know, a manager of a store. Like, they... They struggled to pay for my equestrian sport and to keep me sort of in the high level of competition and competing on a national level. And now as my own person paying for those things, I really understand that financial burden much more now. Um, You know, when you're 14, you just don't understand those sorts of things. Um, And so I really like to stress that if you want to compete at a high level, you need to be prepared to make sacrifices. And those sacrifices are not just financial. They're also with time, right? Time is sort of the great commodity that everybody has but doesn't really realize is so precious sometimes you're also going to be sacrificing friendships sometimes and, and relationships with people because it requires all of your focus and attention to do well and not just well, but incredibly well in the sport. And so I always like to sort of stress kind of, and it sounds a little bit like, oh, I'm scaring people out of riding, but it's really important that if you really want to be a competitive rider, your heart needs to be in it because it's not going to be easy at all. It's going to be a struggle. And sort of once you get over that con- like concept, there are many barns around the world and around the country that are happy to introduce anybody to riding. Even if you just want to go and take a trail ride and see if you even like riding horses. I mean, there's even a park, um, a, a, a public stable in Washington, D.C. called Rock Creek, um, Rock Creek Horse Center, where anybody can go and ride horses. That is in the doctrine of the of the park, Rock Creek Park, that that barn must exist. Um, hmm. Thank you, Teddy Roosevelt, for that. <laughs> you know, where that way people could have time to interact with horses. And you can even just go there and pet them if you want to um, and just hang out. Um, and, you know, it just takes resources. It takes time. And also buying the equipment, you know, that stuff. In the beginning, you can kind of get away with borrowing from your local barn, which is great. But you're going to eventually want your own stuff um, specifically so that way, you know, When you wear a helmet, you know, you don't necessarily want to wear the helmet, you know, 20 other people have been wearing. You want to sort of have your own stuff to rely upon, to take care of. And also that's like up to safety measure, right? If you're wearing a helmet that many people have worn, maybe it's been fallen off on, you don't know. And those sorts of things are really important to sort of keep track of because that's how you stay safe. And that's how you do well. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's you can just go to a local barn. There are plenty of plenty of trainers around the world who would be happy to have a new student for sure. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Shauna. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. Um, This is a kind of bittersweet episode for me because it is my final episode uh, on the show, Uh, my final episode hosting the show. Um, I'll be taking another job at another publication. Um, More about that soon if you uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, But it has been such an enormous pleasure uh, hosting the show for as long as I have. Uh, Working with my former producer, Mickey Kapper, and my current producer, Benjamin Frisch, has been um, just a wonderful experience. And being able to share all of these jobs, uh, mostly human and sometimes animal, with with you, our listeners, has been... uh, genuinely a a privilege and i'm so grateful to you for listening uh and i'm so grateful that that i uh, got to do this this week we also want to tell you about another slate show uh the culture gap fest which just celebrated its 10th anniversary the culture gap fest is a weekly roundtable with slate critics dana stevens julia turner and stephen metcalf they discuss everything from taylor swift to martin heidegger uh and, and lots of stuff in between This week, they're doing a special episode on Angels in America with Dan Coyes and Isaac Butler, two uh, terrific people that I I like a lot. Uh, And they'll also be talking about the new film, Love, Simon. Check out the Culture Gap Fest every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Working. Uh, Working is produced and edited by Benjamin Frisch. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.